Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Supreme Court and Hobby Lobby. Uh, Richard, we've talked on this show about a lot of the cases that came before the Supreme Court this session. None of them has gotten quite as much attention amongst the broader public as the Hobby Lobby case on the contraception mandate last week. There has been so much ink spilled on this story that I want to start with an aspect of this that's been largely ignored. People talk about the contraception mandate. You require employers to provide health insurance plans that covered contraception as part of Obamacare. Um, but no member of Congress – ever voted to impose the contraception mandate itself. The law itself simply refers to the provision of preventative care and screenings. It was through yes. the rulemaking power of the Department of Health and Human Services that this rule was established. So for our listeners who aren't steeped in administrative law, can you articulate the principle there? Is there some shorthand rule for when a policy is substantial enough that it has to be approved by Congress? rather than promulgated by a, a cabinet department or an administrative agency. This seems like an awful big and contentious provision well, not I mean, to have put directly to a vote. You are basically raising the major and fundamental problem of the administrative state, which is the way in which the system works is that there are broad-level delegations that are given down by Congress. And in those delegations lie a set of choices that are simply enormous in terms of their scope of operation. And many of these things are well well, evident to Congress at the time it passes the statute, you pass it down to the administrators. And what happens is if you've got a democratic Congress and a democratic set of administrators, they will write the regulations one way. If you keep the same statute, have the Bush people come in, they can immediately change them into the opposite direction. And there's a case out there called Brand X. And what it stands for is the proposition that if the government in its administrative capacity reverses itself, it doesn't have to give any particular explanation for what's going on. So to give you but one example having to do with wetlands and navigable waters, when the Republicans ran Congress, if you want to talk about a navigable water, uh, you were talking about a river on which you could run a boat. Um, when the Democrats take over because they want to have more extensive regulation, it turns out that any uplands from which waters drip into a navigable river may themselves be regarded as navigable waters of the United States as well. The difference in scope could easily be a hundredfold in terms of its application. Uh, so people like myself who have always been deeply dubious with respect to the administrative state have urged that you want the legislature to make the fundamental decisions and the lower body simply to fill in the pieces. But ever since the New Deal, it's quite clear that the so-called non-delegation doctrine, which is that there's certain things that you can't leave to an agency to decide for itself, um, is in fact not there. You can give them the broadest possible mandate imaginable and let them roll the deck as they pleased. And to go back to this one, if you talk about preventive care and screenings, there are all sorts of things that you can do that offend nobody at Hobby Lobby or indeed anywhere else. Pap smears for women, pregnancy care for women, all of that stuff, in fact, is perfectly appropriate. Why this should be what without cost-sharing requirements when any other medical expense is, that becomes much more of a propaganda piece. And what it does is it introduces an explicit sex difference into the Constitution. Uh, there were times when many women's groups were appalled at the fact that you had these things, but times they are shifting, and the answer is you can have the ones that the women's groups like, and you can't have the ones that they dislike, so that what you've done now is you've built a kind of 
partisanship right into the ground level of the administrative state. As a long-term matter, this level of discretion is extremely upsetting. Every once in a while, we will get a decision out of the Supreme Court that will contain some word or phrase that was previously obscure that almost instantly becomes part of the lexicon. And it seems that in this case, it was this term closely held corporations, distinct group that Justice Alito, who wrote the majority opinion, distinguished from the kind of big publicly held institutions we tend to think of when we hear the word corporation in everyday use. For the purposes of this case, what was important about the fact that Hobby Lobby was a closely held corporation? Okay, Look, again, it really helps first to know what a closely held corporation is and then to put that then against the statute. And the, what the term means is that a closely held corporation is a corporation with limited liability. Its shareholders tend to be members of a common family. Many of them tend to hold administrative positions. And the key feature is that those shares do not trade on any public exchange. So that if you want to sell the shares, you have to get the consent of all the existing parties. Um, when you look at this, you can only have closely held corporations if people have a unanimity of view. Um, if, in fact, you lock people in a cage because they can train their shares and one person desperately wants to give the contraceptive mandate and the other person is fiercely opposed to it, the corporation will blow up. Uh, so what happens is Justice Alito quite rightly says you get this kind of concentration of sentiment, then you read it against the basic prohibition in the um, uh, Freedom Religious Restoration Act or Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It says government shall not substantially burden a person's exercise of religion, okay? Even that results from a rule of general applicability ex was subject to exceptions. Now, if in fact everybody in this corporation had different points of view, it's going to be very difficult to say you're burdening any individual shareholders' exercise of religion. If you don't like what's going on because a company gives this benefits, sell the shares in the open market and get a competitive price. But what he says in effect is you treat the corporation as a person. It turns out when it's a closed corporation, those views are homogenous enough that they actually do in fact burden the particular individuals in question. And at this point, there's a learned debate as to whether or not you can burden a corporation as a person or whether you can only burden its shareholders. I regard this, as did Justices Kagan and Breyer for different reasons, as essentially an irrelevant question. So long as you know that the corporation represents individuals who have investment in it and you know that they're all of the same mind with respect to this issue, then their exercise of religion is going to be burdened if, in fact, the restrictions of the Obamacare Act are a burden to an individual. So you have to then fight the question as to whether or not this is a substantial burden, but you don't prejudice the argument on that question one way or another in virtue of the fact that you have a family business operating in a corporate form. One other point on the statute, on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Well, the other standard is that the purposes for which the government's imposing the burden have to represent a compelling governmental interest. It sounds like a standard that we need some context to define. Where has the bar generally been set for that standard? Um, well, you know, it, it all depends on where you go. Uh, the phrase compelling state interest actually started to get developed originally in the race cases and then carried over a little bit to some sex cases, but not all that many. And so what happens is if you were the you state of Alabama, what you wanted to do is to get the membership list 
of the National Association of Colored People, the NAACP, you had to show a very compelling state interest for having it. And the harassment of its members by the local Alabama police force doesn't qualify like that. If you go back to New York Times against Sullivan, which was a defamation case and also a civil rights case, it was pretty clear that Justice Brennan who wrote a lot of these opinions in the early 60s, thought that you had to have an extremely high burden um, when you were dealing with these cases in order to suppress the speech of somebody like uh, the New York Times. And to give you an illustration of what that would be, um, if you go back to the Pentagon case, um, Pentagon Papers case, what you did is you had a situation where somebody published lots of so-called classified information in the Pentagon files, which had to do with early involvement in Vietnam. And Justice Brennan said, you don't have a compelling state interest to suppress that, but you tell me that you're dealing with the uh, schedules for troop ships going overseas in time of war. I'm going to enjoin that. So that kind of gives you what the barometer is. Uh, On the other hand, if you look at the private law cases, what happens is the traditional rules to overcome the protection of private property required some kind of showing of necessity. You had to show that there was a big storm. And if you didn't take somebody's property, you couldn't protect the people from the destruction. You had to show that there was a fire or one thing or another. You had to show you had to take this thing over in order to prevent people from gathering in the building and shooting and killing everybody else. What happens is the moment the compelling state interest test meets the anti-discrimination laws, things start to change. So in dealing with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, sort of everybody says that the elimination of employment-based discrimination is now a compelling state interest. Uh, Where they get that from, I do not know. I think in general in competitive markets, the statement is just properly wrong, just properly understood as false, and that the key test should always be there's a compelling state interest to allow people to gain access to any kind of common carrier or public utility that has a monopoly in the market in which it operates. So your local electric company can't shut you out because you're black or brown or green or yellow or anything else. But at this particular point, uh, the left in writing its dissents want women's health writ large to be regarded as a compelling state interest um, so that they then get to least restrictive means. And what happens is in a terrible tactical mistake, uh, Justice Alito doesn't even want to talk about that particular issue in his opinion. He just leaves the whole thing hanging. Okay, so let's play this forward. Why don't we start by uh, – talk about the Wheaton College decision from the court that came up right after Hobby <laughs> Lobby. It's colored the way some people have thought yeah. about the original decision. So what yes. happened there? What does it mean? Well, first of all, one of the consequences of the Alito punt on this issue is he said, you know, it's a compel- maybe may not be a compelling state interest, but I'm going to go to the third prong, which is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling state interest. And you know what? You don't have to require them to do the mandate All you can do is require their insurance company to pick up the slack. Now, Wheaton College comes along, and they are in the group where that's the accommodation that is being offered. And what they say to the United States government is, look, we will not sign a form which authorizes you to take the money out of our insurance company. And we certainly don't want to have a situation in which they just raise our general rates without charging us anything specific for what's going on here. And instead of saying, you know, we just told you that this was a reasonable accommodation in the earlier case, what the five justices now joined by Justice Breyer say, it's a really interesting question. We're going to suspend the enforcement of this statute until we have a chance to view this on the merits. Well, Justice Sotomayor, who's known for getting rather upset about these kinds of things, goes ballistic. And she said, wait a second, you just told us that you 
didn't have that you struck down this contraceptive mandate because there was a less intrusive means and now you're telling us that this less intrusive means may itself be constitutionally suspect so she really beats them up and they just write a very short and terse opinion leaving it for future imaginations to what's going on and the lesson you learn from this is that if you're writing an opinion about a statute which is very short and has three key prongs to it you can't skip over the middle prong and assume that you'll make the thing coherent what the central problem in american jurisprudence turns out to be is we have now so accustomed ourselves to the view that forcing people to hire people whom they don't want is okay under the anti-discrimination laws and okay under the labor law that we haven't faced the underlying reality that sometimes when you force people to do something they really don't want to do it and in effect that they're going to fight you all the way. Uh, so this coercive action of the state gives rise to these fierce rearguard actions on the other side, and everybody's accusing everybody of fighting a war against everybody else. So you pick your label. Is it a war against women or is it a war against religion? Or both, or neither. Final question on that point. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I think I'm accurately summarizing what we've talked about here and in previous episodes of the, the show. But you know, correct me if and where I'm wrong. You point out in your column at Defining Ideas that companies like Hobby Lobby aren't seeking to impose anything on anyone in a case like this. They're essentially fine with women doing whatever they want on contraception. In fact, they don't have a problem with 16 of the 20 varieties they're supposed yeah. to cover in the mandate. They just don't want to be complicit in the ones they have moral objections to paying for. And we can look at the dynamic that we've talked about in an earlier episode in the, the gay marriage cases with the proprietors of these small businesses, photographers or florists mm. or, or bakers who weren't trying to stop gay marriage ceremonies. They just didn't want to be compelled to, to service them in violation of their religious beliefs. It increasingly seems that what – to follow Isaiah Berlin, I guess we call the negative liberties of yes. these religious groups or individuals, the, the rights basically to be left alone, are being subordinated to the – the essentially entitlements of these other groups that are placing demands upon them. As we look forward, what in your judgment does that mean for the future of religious liberty, the future of free association? Is this in your judgment a sort of fleeting tempest or have we crossed a bridge in American life over which we're not likely to return? I regard this as the single most serious issue that faces the United States in terms of the way in which it organizes ordinary personal interactions between people. This came up in the Martinez case where the University of California was told that it could exclude this small Christian legal society from its bulletin boards because it would not admit gays into its membership ranks. And Ruth Ginsburg, acting rather totalitarian in my view, said that's perfectly okay because they're merely withholding a benefit and they're not coercing somebody, a distinction which everybody left and right had rejected some 30 and 40 years ago. Uh, if you look at the case about Harris against Quinn, what you're trying to do is to tell this mother, you know, you're taking care of your retarded 25-year-old son, and what happens is he's your employer. It turns out the state is also your employer, so now you're a member of the SEIU to whom you have to pay dues. I mean, what you're doing is you're coercing in that case. You're coercing in this particular case. In the gay marriage cases, the issue is not going to be whether or not there's gay marriage. It's going to be whether or not what you can do is essentially force people to take into their ranks or into their 
churches, those people who, in fact, um, parties to same-sex couples and same-sex weddings. I have no desire whatsoever to prohibit the formation of any kind of voluntary union. But it seems to me that the problem that you have on the American left is that freedom of association is fine for it, but the ability to coerce under an anti-discrimination law is the fate of everybody else. And unless and until they're willing to back off and be content with the situation in which they could run their own lives, they will find that other people will fight them fiercely at every level because with the honest differences in beliefs, what they do is they simply do not want to have to march to somebody else's drummer. And, and as far as I'm concerned, I have lots of sympathy in terms of the substantive positions with some of the liberal views. But I think that it's overweening intolerance and utter lack of respect for differences of opinions on matters of personal taste and morality is in fact the sign of a totalitarian state. So this is going to continue. They will never be able to persuade the conservatives who oppose to them on religious grounds to surrender and they won't be able to persuade people like myself who are not committed ideologically to the positions that many of these conservative groups take that they are in fact correct. What you have to do in a system of mutual toleration is to allow people to engage in practices that you find abhorrent. And if in fact that you are right, persuade them. But at this particular point, their attitude is what we find offensive, we can ban. And of course, the last illustration of that to some extent is at the root of the Washington Redskins controversy as well. We find it offensive, you can't use it. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org. <laughs>